Welcome to the podcast series from the Forum at Harvard School of Public Health. You may also watch a video of this event at www.forumhsph.org. Welcome. My name is Scott Malone. I'm an editor in charge of general news for the Northeastern United States for Reuters, and I'll be your moderator today. This event is a collaboration of the forum here at the Harvard School of Public Health as well as Reuters News. Today's program, Legalizing Marijuana, the Public Health Pros and Cons, will last about an hour. We'll begin with an examination of the dimensions of the debate and then look at some of the policy implications. We'll take questions from our online and studio audiences and also be rolling a brief clip from Reuters News. If you're watching online and you have questions for the panelists, you can email them to the forum at hsph.harvard.edu or tweet them to at forumahsph using the hashtag, hashtag MarijuanaHealthForum, all one word. You can also participate in a live chat that's happening right now on the forum's website. And I'll begin by introducing our panelists today, who, starting from my immediate right, are Jim Doyle, the former governor and former attorney general of the state of Wisconsin, a. Eden Evans, director of the Massachusetts General Hospital Center for Addiction Medicine. Jeffrey Mirren, senior lecturer and director of undergraduate studies in the Department of Economics at Harvard University, who's also affiliated with the Cato Institute. And joining us online remotely is J. Schuyler McKinley, deputy director of marijuana coordination for the state of Colorado, as well as Igor Grant, chair of the Department of Psychiatry at the University of California, San Diego School of Medicine. Marijuana policies in the United States have changed quite rapidly in the past few years. And while it, under federal law, remains illegal across the country, citizens face a patchwork of laws varying from state to state and even city to city. Um, we have states, 21 of them, including Hawaii and Delaware, that have legalized medical marijuana. We have another group of states, uh, 15 in all, that have decriminalized it, meaning that possessing marijuana remains illegal, but uh, it's treated more as a traffic offense, payable by a by a ticket rather than prison time. We have two states, Colorado and Washington State, that have legalized recreational use of the drug. And we have three, two other states and the District of Columbia that have ballot initiatives this fall considering legalizing recreational use as well. And with that, I'll kick it off to Jim jo Doyle to get us started. Well, thank you, and I'm really uh, pleased to be here. Uh, I was a district attorney the local prosecutor in the late 70s and early 80s in Madison, Wisconsin. So these debates have been going on a long time. And uh, the hot issue in a university town like Madison was, do you prosecute marijuana? And my conclusion was we were not going to prosecute simple possession of marijuana. It was a prosecutorial decision, frankly, somewhat of a political decision, because in Madison, if you were going to prosecute marijuana, you probably wouldn't be the elected district attorney for very long. So the debate, the debate has been going on a long time. I went on to become attorney general and in charge of the basic drug enforcement uh, mechanisms of the state of Wisconsin, and then governor where I had to deal with issues on a, on a very broad uh, scale. Uh, turning first to me medical marijuana, uh, we will hear from experts and research, but to me this is somewhat a pretty simple story. I, I've had uh, dear friends, two in particular, suffering from cancer. One unfortunately died from pancreatic cancer. And he had to go out into the street. He would tell me these stories. He had, he'd stay part of the time in Florida and he'd go onto the streets of Miami and you know, meet drug dealers and buy marijuana because that's the only way he could sleep at night and the only way he could have uh, uh, a appetite. 
to me, there's basically wrong. A dying person having to act like a drug dealer, somebody who's obeyed the laws of a life his whole time, and now is in a position of having to do this. So it just seems to me on that level, we ought to be able to find a way. I know there are a lot of issues in how you design this system and how it works and how it operates and how you keep it away from kids, but we ought to do everything we can, I think, to be able to have people who will find themselves in that situation not have to become criminals at the end of their life making drug deals in malls in Florida in order to get a good night's sleep. Um, so I, I, as governor, it never came to my desk because I think politically this issue is still a great deal of flux. There were years, uh, I know when I was attorney general, you could never have said you were for legalization of marijuana politically. Now I think that's changing very dramatically. Obviously in some states it's changing. Um, but I do think we need to do something about medical. Uh, I also don't believe it should be something that simple possession means that you should end up in a criminal justice system. Uh, and so that's why, as I say, when I was a DA, we, we sort of de facto came to a point where you, the city of Madison enacted a little ordinance and you'd pay a fine, $25 fine. But there are a couple problems with that as it has moved along. One is, that's in Madison. You could drive to a county you know, uh, 40 miles from Madison and get convicted of a crime. So it's very uneven, very uneven enforcement. Um, and the other problem is why we, why we minimized it, the, having a black market did mean that in law enforcement you had to have, you had to have people, uh, people who were making very calculated mercenary decisions to go out and violate the laws of the state of Wisconsin and make a lot of money doing it, you couldn't just turn your back on those people. You couldn't say, well, that's okay, you can do it. So we had the, we were in this sort of untenable position and have been for years, I think, where we're saying it's kind of okay to use it, but anybody who does anything to do with getting you that marijuana is now a, a, a criminal. And they are criminals, by the way. The people who at a large scale are doing that. And they're not nice people who are making, they're making a very calculated decision to break the law and make money doing it. So. But on the other hand, I think it's very hard, and I'm speaking somewhat politically as well as personally, uh, and I think there'd be some, there's very good public health you'll hear about here, uh, uh, that you, you don't want to put the stamp of approval on this product either for a lot of reasons. If somebody had just come out of nowhere and said, here's tobacco, wouldn't it be great? Let's start putting it into the place. We'd find all kinds of reasons to shut tobacco down by the way, did you know it actually was illegal in 15 states to smoke tobacco during prohibition time? So a little fact I've since learned at the Harvard School of Public Health. Uh, but I, so in the end, uh, to me, it's a balance of, and a very hard balance, and one that we're now being called on to make the decision between, I think most everybody agrees, most people on medical marijuana, I think most people agree that it, the use of marijuana uh, shouldn't be seriously punishable. I think some people believe it be, should be punished, some don't, but not seriously. Uh, I think most people believe we should be doing things to make sure that this is out of the hands of children. I'm not a medical expert, but I've raised teenage boys and marijuana is not a good thing for adolescents. I believe that really strongly. Uh, and uh, how you put all those together I guess is the real challenge uh, that is in front of us right now. But those are the issues and they come down, it's legislatures that finally decide these things, elected bodies, and the cultures of states will be very different. So I think people are going to be looking very closely at Washington and Colorado in the coming years, state legislatures are, 
to make the decision on what direction they're going to go in. Right. And we'll, uh, we'll take up discussion today of, uh, of those two states where uh, marijuana is now legal for <coughs> recreational use. Um, and we're fortunate, in fact, to be joined by Skylar McKinley from the Colorado Governor's Office. However, before we cut to Skylar, uh, let's take a brief look at a uh, clip from Reuters of a production facility, facility where marijuana is being grown for recreational use. There's no sound for this clip, I'll, I'll warn you in advance, but the footage will give you a sense of what uh, large-scale production looks like. And with that, uh, let's turn it over to you, Skylar. Why don't you explain to us a little bit about uh, what your office do does and, and your role in, in Colorado uh, and marijuana? Sure, happy to, and thanks so much for having me. I guess I should start out by saying that it's, it's certainly not my job, unlike some of the other panelists, to discuss whether marijuana should or should not be legal or illegal for recreational or, or medical purposes. Uh, I, I'm basically, I work in, with the implementation of what the voters in Colorado told us to do, which was, let's have it legal. Um, since the governor's taken office, Colorado's gone from, from 40th to in job creation to fourth. Of the top 50 communities for startups, I think four of the top 10 are right here in Colorado on a per capita basis. We've got the second most educated workforce in the country by some metrics. For about the past decade, we've been the number one destination for millennials. So we have all of these great things in Colorado, and yet what everybody wants to talk about is, is marijuana. Uh, and I think that's why my office exists. Um, I think to understand what I do at work every day, you have to look at the office name, and that's the Office of Marijuana Coordination. And what that means, understandably, is there's a lot of moving parts involved with setting up what's the world's uh, first uh, retail recreational marijuana regime. Um, so I guess our office exists because there's all these state agencies that are involved by statute and by the Constitution um, in, involved in the implementation and regulation of Amendment 64, which was the ballot initiative that, that legalized marijuana in Colorado. Um, so our office exists to get them communicating, to get them working in tandem to achieve the governor's top three policy priorities, um, really as efficiently, as elegantly, uh, and effectively as possible. So what does that mean on a day-to-day -day basis? Well, so we work with these state agencies from the Public Health Department to the Department of Revenue to the Department of Health Care Policy and Financing to the State Patrol. Um, to carry out the people's will uh, kind of in, in three main policy arenas. Uh, number one, it, which the governor alluded to, um, it's decreasing youth marijuana use and consumption by way of our regulations, public education campaigns, and, uh, and youth prevention programs. Number two is, is maintaining public safety. What's that mean? Well, right now it means preventing marijuana-impaired driving, much as we prevent alcohol-impaired driving, uh, and making sure that marijuana-related crimes are policed pretty effectively. And then number three is, is the much more difficult policy area, and that's promoting public health um, by providing options for substance use disorder treatment services, educating consumers on, on responsible legal use, and creating pretty stringent health and safety standards for industry. I say that's the trickiest because, uh, as I think everybody in this room knows, human behavior doesn't operate like a switch. So we, we legalized marijuana in Colorado, but what does that mean from a public health perspective? Well, in the first 10 months, 
We don't think there are new substance use patterns or substance abuse patterns. Um, what's that going to mean in 10 years? Well, that's the real public health challenge. Um, so these are the three areas we work. We work some days we work just on, on marijuana impaired driving. Some days it's working with treatment providers to find something that works statewide. Um, but it's just making sure that as we do this, as we implement the people's will, we, we talk together as much as possible. Great. Well, thank you very much, Skylar. And with that, we're going to hand it over to uh, A. Ed Nevins of uh, Massachusetts General Hospital. And why don't you tell us a little bit about uh, what the current science says about uh, cannabis addiction risk and, uh, and other health effects. Sure, thanks so much for having me. I'm Eden Evans from Mass General. And, and maybe I think a place to start is to understand uh, marijuana and its constituents, THC and cannabidiol and others, and how they act on the central nervous system. Um, uh, they act on the central nervous system in the brain. Um, marijuana is taken recreationally for its intoxicating effects um, and is reinforcing to humans and animals. Uh, some, t some of it is used for reduction of pain in HIV, for reduction of anorexia with cancer, spasticity with multiple sclerosis, and these may be effective medicines for some of these, these illnesses. In fact, there are three FDA-approved uh, medications that involve, uh, that include THC or cannabidiol. I think the cannabidiol is coming. Um, and so effective medicines that act on the brain usually have adverse effects. Um, if they're effective for the underlying illness, uh, which we need more research to prove, um, then we generally weigh the risks and benefits of, of the, the, the beneficial effects of, of, on the illness against the risks inherent in effective doses mm -hmm. of those medications. And so to, to back up, you know, the effects of cannabis on the brain can really be understood by where it acts. Uh, can can cannabinoid receptors are found in high density in areas of the brain that influence pleasure, but also memory, thinking, concentration, movement, coordination, and sensory and time perception. And if you think about where it acts, you can, you can anticipate where the adverse effects may be. Um, and so THC acts similarly to the natural, naturally occurring endogenous cannabinoids, so anandamide and others. And so when someone smokes marijuana, THC stimulates these cannabinoid receptors artificially and disrupting function of the endogenous cannabinoids. And overstimulation of these receptors in key brain regions produces the high, um, as well as other effects on mental processes. And over time, this overstimulation can alter the function of cannabidiol receptors, along with other changes in the brain. This can lead to addiction, to withdrawal symptoms when, with, with, when the drug stops, and to effects on cognition. And you can break that up into two forms, acute effects and more chronic effects. And acute effects include impaired co um, coordination, slowed reaction time, slowed processing of, of particularly unexpected events or complex events. Uh, and we've seen some effects of that. Washington State reported a 50% increase in impaired driver cases testing positive for THC from 2011 to 13, uh, when there became more widespread um, availability of marijuana. Uh, a nice report in the British Medical Journal two years ago uh, was a meta-analysis of nine studies showing a two-fold increase in car crashes um, associated with THC uh, use. So to put that in perspective, with ethanol you have about a seven-fold increase of a crash. With marijuana you have about a two-fold increase of a crash. Um, 
And these motor control deficits probably come from changes in the brain, which we've seen, which is such as uh, lower cerebellar metabolism in, in, uh, in people who use marijuana. Um, and heavy users have been shown more recently to have redu reduced cerebellar volume. So it's reduced change in structure and change in function in the brain region associated with motor control. Uh, other really important acute effects are impaired short-term memory and difficulty with complex tasks. Now, we are not clear on how long these effects last, and I'm very concerned with, with, with whether, whether they're persistent effects, but we're clear that there are acute effects, and acute effects will have a negative effect, uh, particularly on children who are trying to learn. Uh, so school children attending classes using frequently are going to have reduced, reduced learning, reduced memory. And certainly we've seen drug-related high school suspensions spike uh, in 2010. Uh, they went from 3,300 to 4,500 uh, just from 2010 to 2011. So we're, we're seeing increased use in the schools, making this, these, these sort of salient for this this um, this air this this uh, period. And then, what about the the risk, the idea of of, of marijuana as a gateway and, and something that can lead people into into yep. the use of other drugs? So, so the best study of that to date, these these are studies that are ongoing, but there's one very nice study in animals showing that that uh, that pretreatment with uh, THC increases the addictiveness of nicotine. And we know that, that, that nicotine does not need much help with increasing its addictiveness, but this, this, this has um, been shown uh, recently. So, so that there's, there's more biological evidence backing up this sort of problematic epidemiologic uh, uh, evidence, which is sometimes hard to control for. But you might wonder why I'm focusing on, on adolescents, and it's because it seems that, that adolescents are at particular risk. Um, so so uh, in, in several studies, one in, in 2011, uh, people matched for IQ and, and, um, and, and marijuana use. Those with early onset, so teenage onset of marijuana use, had significantly poor sustained attention, cognitive inhibition, uh, which is sort of executive control, and abstract reasoning compared to adults who started using. So that's sort of executive function, underlying critical decision making, which, which is um, something we really want our, our, our adolescents mm -hmm. to be able to do, um, is, is affected primarily by those who begin regular use at an early age. Uh, and a small study at MGH also found, uh, who tested kids early and, and didn't find executive function dif uh, difficulties, tested them five years later. Those who had started using marijuana had, had, had worsened executive function. And, and, and that might serve as a, as a nice segue uh, into our um, next guest who is joining us remotely, Igor. Uh, at the Center for, for Medical Cannabis Research. Um, Igor, can you tell us a little bit about what the research has shown about uh, medical benefits, uh, particularly as, re as, they, as regards uh, pain management of, uh, of marijuana? Uh, sure, I'd be happy to. Um, I'm at the University of California, San Diego. By the way, since I'm remote, can you hear me okay? Yes, we can. Okay, great. So uh, I'll give you one uh, brief background as to kind of where um, our group is coming from. Um, as uh, people may know, California was actually uh, the first to pass what was called a Compassionate Use Act, um, which was um, a state initiative that uh, envisioned provision of cannabis to patients who may need it on doctor recommendation. Uh, and that was in the mid-90s. And then... Um, in 2000, the legislature of the state of California decided that there should be some uh, research conducted on possible med medical benefits and side effects and so forth. 
And so they funded the Center for Medicinal Cannabis Research at the University of California, which, which I direct. So that's, that's who I am. Uh, basically, um, our work was funded to do short-term uh, efficacy studies, uh, and we focused on uh, two areas. One was uh, painful peripheral neuropathy, which for your listeners uh, refers to a type of chronic burning hypersensitivity pain, um, which um, can complicate conditions such as uh, diabetes, uh, HIV-AIDS, um, certain kinds of injuries, uh, toxicities of certain uh, medications like anti-cancer drugs and so forth. And, and this is a, a, a painful condition that is disabling, and, and um, uh, although treatments exist, it's not, they're not always uh, effective. And because of animal and anecdotal literature, uh, we uh, focused on this area. And basically, the sh in the short term, what we found was that uh, administration of smoked or inhaled cannabis um, uh, did reduce uh, peripheral neuropathic pain substantially, and the size of the effect uh, was very comparable to that of uh, existing drugs. And in some studies, actually, this was added on top of existing treatment and provided further benefit. And the other uh, study uh, focused on uh, severe muscle spasm and multiple sclerosis. MS is a neurologic uh, condition, as people may know, chronic. And uh, spasticity in muscles can be also disabling, painful, uh, limit a person's activities. Again, there are treatments uh, which are uh, not universally effective, and uh, uh, cannabis uh, did show efficacy here as well. And that also comports with the results of some other data by studies done elsewhere in Canada and elsewhere. So basically, our conclusion is that there is evidence from short-term studies that cannabis can be helpful in neuropathic pain and spasticity of MS. As one of the speakers mentioned earlier, uh, there's already evidence of um, a benefit of THC, particularly in the management of anorexia, that is severe weight loss due to uh, uh, medical conditions of various sorts, uh, as well as anti-nausea uh, properties. And so THC uh, astrocabinol is already um, licensed for those purposes. I think where it leaves us is that um, these short-term studies uh, need to be um, confirmed and extended with longer-term uh, more representative patient populations, and particularly looking at, um, uh, you know, we studied people mostly in years, adults, um, you know, what about elderly people and so forth. So there are a number of questions uh, that remain. Wonderful. The last point I would make, one more point, sure, ahead, which I'll come back, is uh, I think it is very important, uh, as the governor mentioned earlier, to draw separation between discussion of medical uh, uses uh, and indications and, and how that should be governed uh, as opposed to recreational and other social policy issues. So I think we should bear that in mind. Great. And, and that leads very nicely into, I think, what uh, we're going to talk about with you, Jeff. Um, obviously, we have this you know, patchwork of policies out there. Um, what do we know about you know, how effectively the, the policy has accomplished their, their stated goals? So if I can, I'd like to just touch briefly on a, a few other things and get to that at the end. So first, I would like to suggest that this topic is not just a public health topic. 
there are a lot of dimensions of the question of legalization versus uh, other policies that involve effects on crime, on budgets, on civil liberties, and most fundamentally on people's freedom. Okay, I think that should be included in the conversation. On the public health effects, I would emphasize that there's a huge range of studies out there about things like the effect of teen use on uh, IQ, and there's lots of disputes about the validity of some of those studies, so it should all be taken with a much bigger grain of salt than it sometimes uh, is emphasized. Sec third, we shouldn't ignore the fact that even if use does increase substantially under legalization or medicalization, okay, there are benefits that many people perceive they get from using marijuana, even just recreationally. Okay? Some people think it makes them happy. Some people think it makes it more fun to go to parties. Some people just like the feeling of being stoned. In a free society, that's their right, not the government's right. It's certainly one effect of trying to restrict access that should be part of the discussion. Fourth point, the budgetary impacts, which is one of the reasons that I was here because I've studied that, I think are way overstated. The budgetary effects in terms of tax revenue and reduced expenditure on police are quite small because marijuana is just one product among zillions of products. It can't possibly lead to that much extra tax revenue. And de facto, most places have moved a lot in the direction of legalization, so they're not spending that much police, prosecution, incarceration money on marijuana at this point anyway. So there will be minor savings, but not major savings. Then last, the point that Scott sort of pointed to, whatever you think about any of those issues, a crucial question is whether different policies have major effects on how much people use and on all the other things that people associate with use, from traffic accidents to crime, to reduce teen educational outcomes, and so on and so forth. So I've just finished a paper that looks explicitly at Colorado and collects all the data that are available on any indicator you can think of. Now, unfortunately, we don't have direct data yet on use post-legalization. There's a lag in the collection of those data. It'll be about another year and a half or two. But we have some fairly recent data on, on uh, marijuana tax revenues, on crime, on traffic accidents, on teen graduation rates, teen test scores, and so on and so forth, both before and after legalization and before and after a major commercialization of medical marijuana in Colorado, which made it much more widely available. And the sum summary is really simple. It's almost impossible to detect any effects of these changes in marijuana policy. In increasing use, in decreasing use, increasing crime, decreasing crime, whatever you look at, you just can't see any effects. Okay? So that suggests that if it costs money to enforce the policy and it's not affecting anything, then it's probably not a very sensible policy. Now, uh, I, think, I think regardless of that, obviously, we have these two, um, you know, two states, Washington and Colorado, that have, have legalized it for, for recreational use. And uh, people are certainly going to be watching to see what the effects of those policies are. And I think that's an appropriate time, really, for, for us as a country to, to wonder, you know, as we're studying these, you know, these two states and as, you know, you have other states considering similar moves, what would success look like? What would be, you know, in a, in a state that, recreation, that legalized recreational marijuana, what would a model be that would be, this is clearly a successful experiment? What would be a model be that this was a fail, failed experiment? And, and what should other states, lawmakers, policymakers look to to say, well, we should go down this road or, you know, that was, let's not, let's not do that. Let's avoid that. Governor. Well, the one policy that I would want, the one set of facts I would really want to understand, because uh, I agree with much of what 
uh, was said about individual people being able to make individual choices. The one thing is what is the effect on uh, adolescent use of marijuana? If in fact that if in fact the testing uh, the studies demonstrated that there is not any increase, I would say legalize it in two seconds. Then depending on what those studies show, the question becomes more and more difficult. If it's just a question of adults making an adult decision, the one other one on a public policy matter is the driving issue. And obviously we have uh, tests now that accurately test for alcohol and our laws have all been ex uh, uh, developed in a way that if you're over 0.08 and so on, it, it's a violation. And if we could arrive at that same point on, with, a, with medical understanding of what the levels are that actually affect driving and arrive at that kind of regime, that's what I would be interested in. But those are the two policy matters that I would be interested in uh, because if it's just a matter of whether individuals, adults, should be able to use marijuana or not, this is me speaking, not the Wisconsin legislature or whatever, but <laughs> I think that's for the adults to make that decision. Now, um, Eden, you, you, were, you were talking a bit about the, the concerns associated with adolescent use right. of the drug. And um, what, you know, what do you see, you know, what do you see as, you know, what should be people, should people who are studying Colorado, Washington State, be looking for as regards to adolescence? So I think it's very interesting that you, uh, you said what would this, ex what would be success of this experiment? And I think that's what we're doing. We're experimenting really with our young people. That's where the data are that, that are not promising. They certainly need replication, but what we know so far is not promising for a good effect for our adolescents. Um, could you show the first slide? Actually, there's a um, the the marketing is to kids, um, and uh, qu quite 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 uh, um, uh, obviously uh, candies, etc. Now, kids have almost a double chance of being becoming addicted if they use uh, compared to adults, and if they use heavily, the estimated addiction rates are 25 to 50 percent. So I think we're talking about an experiment, and you know we talk about costs, et cetera. But if if the the first study showing a potential for an eight point IQ loss in kids is accurate, you know what is that worth in financial terms? Um, uh, I think think that that's hard for an economist or, or anyone to sort of to, to to get their their heads around. So my sense is that what we know is not enough, but. Um, but we're moving ahead very quickly okay. without without knowledge. Uh, Jeff, is there any any research that uh, you've you've spoken a bit about the the, the disconnect um, previously between you know something being marketed to a to a group and how effective that is? Um, you know whether whether it captures them, whether it leads them in. Is is there any research that's been done that on this this issue of of marijuana and marketing and um, and younger? People. I'm not aware of much in, much evidence on marijuana marketing because it's not a legal product for the most part, even in the few places where it's sort of legal, it's still illegal under federal law, and so the advertising has been shut down. There's certainly evidence from many, many other products who suggest that the vast majority of advertising switches people's brand choices but has minimal effects on whether they choose to use the product. You think about Coke versus Pepsi or Budweiser versus you know, Miller and so on and so forth. So. I am very suspicious that making it legal has a major effect on whether teens use, but I'm not disagreeing with the notion that it should be restricted to adolescents. We know from experience with alcohol that's not going to work perfectly. Lots of adolescents are still going to get access. 
but we're always trying to balance the pros and cons of these policies. There's no perfect policy. Anything we do is going to have some negative side effects, and the question is which ones you want to right. worry about the most. And, and I mean that, to me, in many ways, that's you know one of the the interesting things about this is that that this is happening at a time when you know broadly across the United States, there's a lot of other public health areas. Um, consumer products that we're really trying to restrict or, you know, policymakers are trying to restrict use of. Um, there's been a lot of changes in, in policies around tobacco smoking and, and where you can smoke, how much it's taxed. Uh, we saw in, in New York City last year the attempt to, to greatly um, regulate soft drink size. Um, to, to what degree should that be a factor in our our discussions of this, the, you know, the, pu the public health consequences of greater access to marijuana? I think you and others, many have written that, that, that there really is, is not much argument that, that increasing availability will increase use and marketing, uh, we're talking about initiation of use. So Joe Camel uh, for tobacco certainly you know, was, was a factor in increasing initiation or experimentation. Same with, with electronic cigarettes. There's recently a, a, a letter out from a number of Congress people to e-cigarette makers uh, really uh, taking them to task for marketing. Uh, cotton candy flavored electronic cigarettes while claiming they're not marketing to kids. And, and now for, 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 for marijuana products, there's marijuana soda, marijuana Klondike bars, uh, marijuana kettle corn, you know, uh, Nutella. Um, it's it's um, Nutella with like 320 micrograms of hash oil per cup. It's, you know, it's very strong. Um, you know, and in 2009, there were 375,000 marijuana-related ER visits. So, and, and, and a new diagnosis. There were never pediatric marijuana overdose admissions, but the American uh, Journal of Pediatrics, American Journal of Academy of Pediatrics, uh, reported last year a new diagnosis, uh, marijuana overdose in kids, including babies, having access to, to baked goods with, with marijuana. Um, so so I, I think that, there, that, that there's, there's there's, there's a Safety real downside, yeah. yeah. Great. Jeff. So I just want to say as something to think about in deciding how to improve the public health, if that's the objective. The tobacco case, we reduced tobacco consumption a huge amount in the United States and many other countries while it was still legal. So all sorts of public and private actions were taken combination of restrictions on where you could smoke, on higher taxes in some cases, on doctors telling their patients not to smoke, on coaches telling their athletes on their teams not to smoke, this dramatic reduction without having created a black market, without having drive-by shootings over cartons of, of you know, camels and so on and so forth. So again, none of these is perfect, but the prohibition approach Okay, that is the opposite of legalization, has these huge negative side effects that we should be concerned about. But wouldn't you argue that at the, at, if we were at the brink of legalizing tobacco and we had early indications that the odds ratio is 30 for, for lung cancer, uh, for, for smokers of tobacco, we might have approached the commercialization of tobacco differently. I would argue that we shouldn't have. I would argue that people on the whole have enough <laughs> common sense that relatively few people would take up a product that has that level of risk relative to well, benefit. I also would argue that that's their choice. But that may be true, but not for kids. The problem is yeah. the addictive nature yeah. of the product. So yeah. tobacco, I, when I was governor and attorney general, I'd always put this proposition. Show me one person over 21 years of age who has never smoked tobacco, who has now looked at the whole situation over, done the studies, looked at it and decided, you know, 
I think I've decided I'm going to smoke. The reason people are smoking when they're over 21, and they, I mean, I was in the tobacco lawsuits. The reason in the, is because they were addicted when they were 13, 14, 15 years age. Find me, I always said publicly, I'll give a hundred bucks to anybody who could show me that, and I've never had somebody be a taker. Fine, but there were also zillions of kids who never took up tobacco, despite all the advertising and all the attempts to get them hooked. There were zillions of kids who tried it a few times oh, and didn't do it anymore. There kids who used it regularly and stopped but as 20-year-olds or 30-year-olds. Do you really believe if we were at the, at the just as uh, was stated, uh, if we, uh, Eden, if, if we were at the absolute, but we had never seen or heard of tobacco before, and it was just ready to be introduced into the, Ameri to the United States, you would be in favor of the introduction of this product? I'm not saying that the government should introduce it. I'm saying it should be legal for private sellers to manufacture it and sell it. See, but, I mean, <laughs> but and again, because I don't think it's personal choice. It's an addiction that's created early, and that's the big problem with with marijuana. Addiction is easily overstated. Many well, so, many people so, stop using highly addictive substances, but many people and many people who you think of as I? addicted think they're just consuming something that they like. And there are also a, a range of products out there that, that may have addiction potential that, that also have potential medical benefit. And with this, I'm thinking of, uh, you know, and we're facing a, a national crisis of, it na crisis of it now, opioid drug use, right. which are, they're prescribed for pain management, yet, as we've seen, you know, that, that can also lead into public health, cr health crises. We've seen, you know, people, you know, getting legal prescriptions, segueing into getting the drugs illegally and taking them, segueing into taking heroin because right. they're, they're illegal. But yet with that, there's, there is a, an awareness that there is a medical purpose for these that's, that's appropriate. And um, that's actually one that I wanted to um, direct back to you, Dr. Grant, um, a little bit of, you know, the need to separate the two pieces of this debate, the, the medical marijuana versus the, you know, recreational, if not free-for-all, more open access as opposed to getting it with a prescription for a medical reason. Yeah, <clears throat> thank you. Um, yeah, I, I feel uh, that um, because we have conflated or, you know, kind of mixed up the discussion about uh, legalization, recreational use, and, and so forth, uh, with the medical, it's really slowed down the medical progress here. Um, you know, uh, marijuana or the cannabinoids are not magical, uh, so they're not all good, as some would argue, uh, and they're not uh, Satan either. So uh, they are uh, a series of chemicals uh, uh, that, by the way, uh, our brain was not created in order to enjoy marijuana. Uh, our brain and other organs have internal signaling systems that utilize um, chemicals that um, uh, look like uh, the cannabinoids in some ways to perform essential functions in our body. And these functions include things that were mentioned before, various kinds of uh, brain activities, attention, memory, coordination, so on and so forth. They also have other effects, anti-inflammatory effects. They have effects on regulation of appetite. Um, uh, interestingly, there are these cannabinoid receptors, um, uh, even on sperm, so they have something to do with uh, reproduction, probably. These are very ancient systems that are um, in, in many, many organisms. My point in saying all that is that progress in medicine often um, uh, 
results from our understanding of these internal systems, how these internal systems may go awry in some disease states, and then can we use this knowledge to correct whatever those imbalances are. And so the cannabinoids are part of the answer uh, to conditions such as pain. They may have, in fact, some value in other conditions, but we need to do those studies. For example, there are preliminary data on antipsychotic, that is, uh, anti, anti-schizophrenia type of effects of cannabidiol. You've seen Sanjay Gupta's show on the uh, children with intractable epilepsy. Um, and there may be, as I say, anti-inflammatory effects and so forth. It's not a panacea, but it's, uh, it's something that uh, needs to be researched. However, this debate uh, that always puts together the legalization uh, uh, of marijuana and recreational use with medical really has impeded progress in this area. And that's why I urge for the separation of this debate uh, and to conduct uh, really um, more comprehensive uh, trials in this area. Great. Now, um, Skylar, we, we began this portion of the conversation um, speaking a little bit about the question of, you know, what would success look like? What would failure look like? And obviously, the, the country is looking at, at, at you, um, or your state, not maybe you personally, um, as, well as, as well as Washington. And, and I'm curious from, from you know, your office's perspective, you know, what are the, what are the outcomes you're, you're, you're managing to? Um, what are the, the benchmarks you're using as you go through the, you know, the, the early years of, of this new legal framework? Sure. Well, I'll start by saying it's lucky that I'm not camera shy. Um, but um, I guess when we talk about success and failure, that is not a 10-month conversation, which is where we're at now, Right. Um, right. at least in the, in the long term. But over the past 10 months, I can tell you what is working. Um, and, and I think the Brookings Institution came out with a report a few months that, that kind of alluded to this. But by and large, the way we regulate this works. Um, our regulatory model seems to be doing its job just fine. We had a sting that showed perfect uh, perfect compliance uh, among recreational dispensaries not serving to youth. I don't want to say that our model is the perfect model. Um, I don't think that we've conquered every challenge, but what, what is working and what, what Brookings alluded to is that the way this is, this is modeled, and this is the governor's whole philosophy, is we're going to bring stakeholders of different stripes together to the same table where they're going to sit down, they're going to figure out what's working, what's not, they're going to shout at each other, they're going to disagree, they're going to agree. And, and then they're going to write rules and they're going to help write legislation and they're going to help figure out, you know, what, what needs to happen for this to work. And that's everybody. Th- those are people who are involved in, in the cannabis industry. Those are people who oppose it uh, vehemently. Those are people who work in public health communities and think that cannabis is dangerous. People in, in public health communities that think cannabis is, uh, is, is really a miracle drug. What, what, is, what have you learned this, these, these first 10 months into this? What have you learned? Are there course corrections you've made, tweaks that, that, that you've made along the way in you're the model. People are looking at you. Sure. So a good example is edibles. When when the, the people of Colorado implemented or voted, rather, for Amendment 64, uh, certainly edibles are, were legal pursuant to the amendment, but we didn't know how to regulate that because uh, it was slightly – edibles for, for recreational consumption were slightly different than, than edibles for medical consumption, which we previously had. So what have we done on edibles? Well, there were some, some bad news stories that, that had to do with, with edibles, famously Marino Dowd's, uh, Marine Dowd's column, um, where she got a little too high. I think everybody read it. Um, so what have we done? We, we brought, uh, we've brought experts, we've brought stakeholders, we've brought constituents together, and, and we've put emergency rules in place through this working group model, and, and we're going to have permanent rules soon. So what are those rules? Well, it's 
legislation that's going to require opaque child-resistant packaging for edibles. Uh, it, it's going to we're going to require that edibles manufacturers stamp their products with a universal symbol so that you know that there's marijuana in a product. Um, we have regulations in place now that uh, the serving sizes are limited to 10 milligrams of THC per serving. That needs to be intuitive to the consumer. Uh, and then we're working with our Department of Revenue to develop something similar to the Safe Serve program that, that exists for alcohol, where we train bud tenders, they're called, on uh, on how to explain a product to uh, to consumers. And so th that's all happened in the past few months when we realized, hey, we need a course correct on edibles. And you know what? If, if these regulations don't work, we're going to all sit down again and say, all right, these didn't work. These ones did. What can we fix? Uh, what, what can we do better? What, what did we do perfectly? Great. Thank you. Well, I mean, we have a lot of great ideas here in this room, um, out in Colorado, out in California. We also have a lot of viewers um, watching remotely and listening. And at this point, we're going to turn it over to, uh, to some Q&A, first from some of our online participants. And uh, then we'll take some questions from you folks here in the studio. Thanks, Scott. And thanks to all of our panelists. We have a very active chat going on. And there are science questions and policy questions. So um, I'll just start with this one. This is from our live chat. Does marijuana use have positive cognitive effects separate from the executive function? So I'll be happy to please, start with that. Please. So, so uh, uh, marijuana has many constituents. The, the ones you hear about are THC and cannabidiol. And these act actually quite differently on some aspects. So THC is what's thought to be uh, give the rewarding uh, properties of, uh, but also causes anxiety, paranoia, can worsen symptoms of schizophrenia. Then there's cannabidiol, which may actually have some anxiolytic properties. It may reduce some psychotic symptoms. It actually may be a treatment for pediatric epilepsy. There's a study ongoing at, at my hospital as a treatment for, for pediatric epilepsy. So there are, there are certainly elements in, uh, in, in cannabis that, that may be therapeutic. Um, uh, I think that's, you had asked what, what success would look like. And I think success would look like making more cannabis available for study so that we can understand sort of what are the risks of heavy use of early onset um, and are there safe levels of use? Is there a safe age of onset when, when you don't have a, a, a cognitive hit? Um, uh, and more tests being done uh, for, for efficacy for pain, spasticity, and epilepsy. I'm not aware of positive cognitive effects uh, of, of acute intoxication or chronic use of marijuana. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. I'll take one more well, and then we um, can go over one, here. One thing. Oh, I'm sorry. Please go ahead. One thing, maybe this is a little bit tongue-in-cheek, but um, drivers do drive slower, so... Um. <laughs> that's a, that's the, a the, great The point. traffic policy component we've neglected thus far. <laughs> okay. Was there another... Yes, uh, well, we, of course, we're having a lot of questions around um, messaging to kids, so I'll just try to take one here. If marijuana is legal for adult use in states like Colorado, what efforts are being put in place around messaging toward kids in schools and community settings? What lessons on this can be shared from the states of Washington and Colorado as we face elections this November in three other states? Uh, Skylar, it sounds like that's one maybe that you should take the first crack at. Sure, I'll jump right in. And again, I, I'm not here to tell Oregon, Alaska, or the federal government in Washington, D.C. what to do with marijuana, but I can say what we're doing in Colorado. Um, so we're 
what's really nice about sin taxes is we think sin taxes, including a tax on marijuana, they're a bad way to fund government in general because they incentivize the sin, right? But they are really good to to fund the costs of, of associated with the sin or, or with the use of the product that's being taxed. And, and so when it comes to youth prevention, that's the governor's top priority. And that's where we're allocating a lot of, of our marijuana revenues. Specifically, uh, we've got about $17 million in revenue that we're assigning uh, for public education and, and proven youth prevention programming. So what does that mean? Well, there's a, there's a couple million dollars going to school health professionals so that they can identify and know if, uh, if a student is a problem user of marijuana. Um, School-based intervention services, there's also uh, there's money going towards what we call the Tony Gramsci uh, Youth Program, a youth services program, and, and that provides alternatives. It's an after-school program, and we know that you know if, if we give kids uh, you know between 8 and 12 something to do after school, they're going to do it, and they're not going to go use marijuana. Um, so, I mean, we're doing a lot of stuff. Uh, $17 million, like I said, for public education youth prevention, $4 million in, in, in treatment and, and, and other prevention. Um, and, and that's all coming out of what we call the marijuana tax cash fund. So marijuana revenues are using to, are being used to pay for the costs of, of having legal marijuana. Great. Thanks. Uh, Jim, you also have the government perspective, and you, you mentioned this as being a top concern of yours. Um, quick thought. Well, I, I was I, I was very much involved in the tobacco litigation as attorney general, and there, a whole <laughs> host of things came out of that. Um, the elimination of Joe Camel came out of that uh, lawsuit. Uh, the, the no longer being able to uh, put in advertisements at sports facilities. Uh, there's a whole range of of directives that I do think the time has shown has had, a, uh, among other things that have gone on, has had a, a reduction uh, in the amount of tobacco. The one thing that I'm really interested in is whether the businesses of ma the marijuana businesses, the people that are going to make money legally selling marijuana, are motivated strictly to limit their uh, customers to adults. I don't know the answer to this. I don't mean to be because it's clear from the tobacco litigation that the tobacco companies for decades were not ready to limit it to adults and we had focused on children. So I think one of the things we'd really be interested to watch in the legalization states is by making this a legal above board business, do you in fact have companies now who are not playing games with this? Some of those pictures we saw on that slide are disturbing because they were a lot of like what would happen in tobacco, candy, cigarettes, and things like that directed at kids. But I think I can, you know, I don't know the answer, but I can see that a legal above board business maybe who can make money selling to adults is not going to be motivated going after kids. It's one of the things I would really be interested but in it seeing. it may be very bad business. I mean, if 9% if of cannabis users who start as adults become addicted, but 16% of those who start as kids become addicted, it's not good business, perhaps. I don't know if you could show the second slide, too, um, in terms of, of attitudes about, it may answer this person's question, sort of attitudes about the risks of, of, uh, of marijuana. Um, the, the perception of risk is going down, and this is mirrored by increased use. Uh, and you see that's fluctuated over time. But at this point, with the legalization and messaging, the perception of risk is going down. And I don't see much to do that's happening to change that. I mean, my small sample, I go and speak to the Belmont Middle School locally, and they all know tobacco is bad for you, they don't smoke, but they think that marijuana is fine. It's an herb, it's a natural product, it's a medicine. Uh, it'll cure my anxiety, my depression, all these things that actually it may actually worsen. You, you, you do see that, I mean, in a generation, we've had a 
profound change in Americans' attitudes in tobacco, and that's, you see, most vividly among children. Um, did we want to take another one online or from the room? We can or? take one from our audience. Okay. <laughs> I never thought I'd be at Harvard and be an expert in something, but I'd like to introduce myself. My name is Tracy Gamer Fanning, and I'm an eight-year survivor of a malignant brain tumor. Um, I was diagnosed in 2006. I was put on a regimen of medications after brain surgery. I was paralyzed. Um, everything from Dilaudid, Percocet, Vicodin, sleeping pills, Ativan, uh, Valium. It might be quicker just to list what you didn't take. Uh, literally, <laughs> I have a drawer full of medications. And I had an 18-month-old daughter and a four-year-old son. And I wanted to be a mom for as long as I could be. They told me I had a three to five-year life expectancy. I'm eight years out. I started using medical cannabis, thank you, in 2008 during radiation. And my doctor at Hartford Hospital, the head of Hartford Hospital, was the one who suggested I use it. Wonderful story. Did you have a, did you have a question for the, for the panel? I actually just wanted to mention something that you guys were talking about, about gateway drugs. I have three stepchildren and two children, all of them teenagers. They know that I use medical marijuana for brain cancer. And I can tell you that not one of them has ever gone to a party and been handed a joint, and my kids thought, ooh, this will be fun. They thought, oh, this is my mom's brain cancer medicine. And so talking about it as a medicine, not recreationally, but talking about it as a medicine, you can change the perspective that children have if you talk about it as a cancer medication. So messaging, messaging being the, the important uh, piece of this. Um, I think that's a good example of we just need more research. Um, I'm Dr. Denise Valenti, and my expertise is in um, cognition, the visual system, glaucoma, Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, MS. That's what I work with. So those are all pathologies that are involved in um, some of the recommendations for medical marijuana. One of my concerns, though, all of the pathologies I just mentioned may have underlying baseline impairment for driving. So we, all, we, we really need to seriously look at the driving. And one of my questions is actually for the gentleman from Colorado. What I am hearing anecdotally, because the research isn't out there, is one, I have a concern about the medical population, but a larger concern is about the recreational group who are now, while marijuana may slow you, it does impair, impair a lot of cognitive functions, um, the combination of marijuana and alcohol. And then one comment, I didn't hear anybody mention the Minnesota approach where they allowed for medical marijuana, but somewhat are going to eliminate recreational use in that you can't smoke it, there are no edibles. It will be vapor, mist, pills, or tinctures, which is a wonderful compromise. Right, right certainly. Anyway, the driving issue is yeah, a Skyler, big concern. Yeah, Skylar, if you wanted to, um, to weigh in on that. Sure. So I, I think the other panelists and I keep coming back to this. There's not a lot of data uh, for others for states looking to legalize. I think making sure that you've got a data governance structure uh, in place before you go forward is the most important uh, when it comes to things like driving high. What I'll say is um, so. So what you're talking about is is mixing alcohol and, and marijuana. I think there is there's data uh, or, or some studies at the national level showing that's really 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 dangerous. Um, 
So what do you do about that as a government? Well, we, we've rolled out our Drive High Get a DUI campaign um, through our Department of Transportation. It's also being paid for with marijuana dollars. Um, and it's just really, it's creating a culture of responsibility. And a lot of that, uh, I think credit needs to be given to the, the, the marijuana industry in that these folks uh, on the ground, if somebody comes in drunk, I think a, a bud tender is not going to sell to them. Um, there's a lot of responsibility, a lot of compliance and, and self-imposed compliance right now in this 10-month period. Whether that will exist in five years, I don't know. But we're in this honeymoon period right now where everybody wants us to succeed. And, that, and for this to succeed, it's making sure that people aren't using this dangerously. Are people going to drive high? Are people going to, to, to drink and, and, and smoke and then drive? Probably. That, that's human behavior. But government exists to, to really say, don't do this. This is dangerous. Let's make sure this doesn't happen and encourage others who are not government actors to do the same. And I think that's what we're doing. And at least for now, what you're saying is essentially the, the industry is trying to self-police because of the spotlight that they that they have. Exactly. On. Well, and, and they know that compliance is the easiest way for them to uh, to be seen as a leader in the state on this. And, and I think this is the state where you want to be seen Great. as a leader. Jeff, so did you have... Uh, from medicinal use okay. for, for your, your, your clients, though, the, the dose may be very different. And we need, need to know more. But often medicinal use is like two puffs three times a day. And so a joint lasts a week or three days so that they're not driving high. Now we don't know about how much impairment comes with that lower yeah. dose. Yeah. So it may not be as much of an issue. Yeah. Yeah. So the re research consistently shows that people who've consumed marijuana are impaired as drivers. It also shows they're less impaired than people who've consumed alcohol. In addition, numerous studies find that when there was some policy change that led to a difference in the relative price that made marijuana cheaper relative to alcohol, there appears to have been a substitution away from alcohol toward marijuana and declines in traffic fatalities. So again, drinking and driving is a bad idea, smoking and driving is a bad idea, but the question is about the policy. The policy of giving people more choice seems to have led to beneficial effects, not negative effects. Eden, did you have some data that you wanted to yeah. get out of you yeah, right that's, now? that's trotted out a lot, and actually they're, 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 the data are not there to show that there's substitution. I didn't say that. Of cannabis for alcohol. Yeah, so they're not, they're not, there's not data for, for substitution. Um, yeah. We want to take another one. I, I'm sorry, this, we could go on. There's a lot of opinions about this, but I think we're getting ready to wrap up. Okay. Well, a, as we as we move towards cruising to the end of uh, of this uh, panel, one thing that we're going to ask each of our panelists to do is um, to just to offer a, a, a succinct and brief policy takeaway. Uh, this is something that Harvard plans to present to uh, policymakers around the United States, around the world, whoever is interested. Um, and I think we'll just go through in, in the, in the uh, order that we introduce everybody in. So we'll start with you, Governor. I'll say the one thing I've learned today is my wife is a very slow driver, and so I wonder what she's doing. <laughs> in this uh, But I do think this discussion, it seems to me, ends up centered on two things. One is, how do we make sure medically marijuana is available for people who need it? Uh, and I really appreciate uh, the doctors uh, uh, urging us to separate that discussion off from the broad recreational use. Uh, and the second is, what really is the effect on young people and to me, those are, the, those are the issues that I think really need to be looked at and studied. And I, frankly, as I said at the beginning, I think we are forming broad 
national uh, consensus around this, which is medical marijuana. I think the opposition to that has faded. Uh, the only opposition to it is can you set the system up correctly? Uh, and on the second, I, I think we're moving towards obviously making it less of a serious offense and where along the scale from total legalization to a very serious criminal offense, where in that scale is, right. are we best where, uh, where is the new normal? Where is the rest? new normal? Good point. Great. Edin. Yeah. yeah, so legalization brings the power of the marketplace uh, that will certainly increase availability and use in young people. Uh, and it's begun before we know the full risks of exposure in adolescents whose brains are developing. Uh, so this is a large-scale experiment on, on the next generation. And it may be a generation before we've understand what we've, um, before we're able to understand what we've done. Jeffrey. So I would say that prohibition was the experiment, prohibition of marijuana and other drugs. Okay, we had a free society on that dimension before we outlawed them. And that experiment of trying to outlaw bad outcomes, get rid of bad outcomes by outlawing a substance has failed. Okay, and the right thing to do is to take marijuana out of the Controlled Substances Act, indeed to repeal the Controlled Substances Act more generally, but leave that aside for today. Barring that, moving marijuana from Schedule 1 of the Controlled Substances Act, which says it has no medicinal use, it has extreme potential for ho horrible effects, clearly exaggeration, into Schedule 2, where doctors could legally prescribe it under federal law, would be an enormous step in the right direction. Great. Out to uh, Colorado and you, Skyler. Sure. So I guess I have two points. Um, my first would be that, uh, you know, data collection, we keep coming back to it in this conversation. That's key. We just uh, commissioned and issued what was called the Marijuana Data Gap and Analysis Report, which shows uh, what we know, what we know we know, what we don't know, and what we don't know we don't know. And, 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 and figuring out those holes is key to figuring out what, what legalization means. And, and on a related note, I would say that, you know, Colorado can't do this alone, but we have to. Uh, the federal government would normally be involved with uh, dozens of aspects of, of regulation regulating something like this, and that's from pesticides to banking to out-of-state diversion. Because our laws conflict with federal laws, though, we have to figure these problems out on our own. And I think we're doing a good job, but we, we don't have the, the resources that the federal government does. So the federal government is allowing this to take place in Colorado and Washington, uh, and, and we're thankful for that. But I think that they, you know, considerations need to be made uh, continually on, on, please let us have banking. Please let us, you know, conduct research on this, uh, and please let, you know, our, our universities do that. So, you know, we're doing a good job, but boy, the federal no, government's a lot bigger, got a lot more money, and we could use their help. No state is an island, uh, other than Hawaii, right. I suppose. All right, and uh, out to California, and uh, you, Igor. Yeah, so I'd, I'd like to close with a couple of points. One is to reinforce what Governor Doyle said. Let's uh, you know, separate the medical um, uh, discussion from the broader issue of social policy and legalization. Secondly, um, <clears throat> let's get past the idea that there is no evidence whatever that these uh, compounds have any medical value, and that uh, picks up uh, on what Jeffrey was saying about scheduling. Uh, scheduling means, uh, you know, at, at, the, at the moment, marijuana resides with heroin and other terribly dangerous drugs um, uh, uh, with uh, the additional statement that it has no medical value. Uh, that's just not true, and so um, uh, the rescheduling is important. I would re reinforce that. It will permit research. Um, uh, third, um, echoing um, what was said before, 
the larger scale trials that really need to be done in order to inform uh, policy. Policy should be informed by data, I would argue, rather than by faith. Um, so uh, the federal government needs to be involved in supporting trials through NIH and other um, uh, uh, processes. And fourth, I would say that uh, to the extent that marijuana or can- uh, cannabinoids uh, uh, have medical benefit, they should be dispensed and treated like other medicines. Uh, we would not go to a flea market or a farmer's market to buy penicillin. Um, we wouldn't know what was in there. And similarly, uh, since these are medicine, they should be dispensed by pharmacies or some other means that are well-regulated where uh, the patients know really what they're getting and doctors know what they're prescribing. Um, So my final point would be let's have uh, less heat and more light on this topic or let's blow less smoke and get into the clean. (laughs) I'm I'm not even going to try to top that as a closing line. I'm just going to leave that with you. Um, And with that, I'm afraid to say our forum has come to an end, uh, but you can continue the conversation on uh, forum HSPH, that's Harvard School of Public Health, .org. And I hope you'll join the forum for their next live webcast, also in collaboration with Reuters uh, on November 17th, November 7th, excuse me, on the 2014 elections and health reform. And that will be on November 7th at 12.30 p.m. Eastern. Thank you. This has been a production of The Forum at Harvard School of Public Health. You can find the complete video of this event and post your comments at www dot forum hsph dot org. Thank you for sharing the forum.